1989, After Humanity, written and narrated by Paul Inman. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Paul Inman SC. Chapter 9, Ciphers, August 1980. I'm assuming that you thought about the Turing machine and its code-breaking capabilities from World War II. James Hensley asked Doris as he flipped through the opening pages of the first notebook. Simone stood off to one side of the conversation. Just because we aren't all geniuses doesn't mean we are completely brainless. Doris spoke with a pinch of smarminess. James smiled at her faux annoyance. She continued. The problem that I've come across is that the encryption seems very random. It only decrypts small portions of the message, and that little bit doesn't make a lot of sense on its own. James stared down at the notebook, not really seeing what was written down, just staring as his mind processed what she was saying. He absently reached over and picked up the top sheet of the dot matrix printout. Doris continued. We aren't cryptologists, obviously, so it's the only thing that we've tried so far. This caught James's attention. He looked at Doris for a brief second and then spoke. You haven't tried anything else? Seems odd that you'd start with such a difficult decryption technique. Like I said, Doris spoke dryly, not cryptologist. He held up the first page to the dot matrix printout, pointing to the first line of gibberish. Do you see this section here? It seems like the frequency analysis is high, assuming that this is English, of course. This could be a simple Caesar cipher. James walked over to the table where Doris was seated, bringing the stack of dot matrix papers with him. He placed the thick pile of papers on the table and pointed again so Doris could have a better look. This R repeats several times across these four or five jumbled words. It could be the letter E, our most commonly used letter, once this is unscrambled. Doris sat up and looked at the line. Simone entered the conversation. What if it's not English? She stepped over to the papers and pointed a few lines down the page. Clearly there are letters from other languages here. True. But for now, with this section, let's assume it's English, at least as a jumping-off point. Okay, let's assume, Doris said. Most of us only have a cursory knowledge of ciphers. I know the Caesar cipher was used by Julius Caesar, but I'm not really familiar with how it works. It's easy, James began. Basically, it's just a shift across the alphabet. In other words, each one of these jumbled letters is a proxy for the real letter. If we make the assumption that the letter R truly represents the letter E, it would mean that we've shifted all 26 letters the same distance from R to E. James glanced around, looking for a scrap of paper, and settled on the notebook he'd held earlier. He flipped to the back and found one of only a few empty pages and began to scribble out the English alphabet. He circled the letter R and put a triangle around the letter E. This is where we start, James said, pointing to the circled R. And this is where we want to go. Again, he pointed, this time to the E inside of the triangle. You just count how far to shift. You can either go forward, moving back to the beginning once you've reached Z, or backward until you get to the E. James counted to himself. Thirteen, he said aloud. That's how far we shift. In this case, the distance was the same in either direction. He wrote a second instance of the alphabet under the first, starting with the letter E underneath the circled R, and worked his way in both directions until he had a full, shifted alphabet. James chuckled. Unbelievably, this is even simpler than the standard Caesar cipher. 
Check it out. It's exactly 13 in either direction, which means every letter lines up with the same letter as the other iteration of the alphabet. See? He pointed to the letter P on the top version of the alphabet, then slid his hand down to the letter C underneath it on the shifted version of the alphabet. P lines up with C if we start from the source alphabet. And, he moved his hand again, we can see that in the shifted alphabet, the letters C and P line up as well. It's deceptively simple. Sure it is. Now we just have to line up the correct letters. Simone was excited about this small breakthrough. She took the notebook from James, tearing out the piece of paper where the cipher was written, and placed it to the side. She flipped back to the beginning of the book where she jotted down the scrambled letters the previous day. She grabbed a pen and underlined the section in her notebook that corresponded with the first line from the dot matrix printout. It read, G-U-R-F-R-Q-R-F-V-T-A-F J-V-Y-Y N-Y-G-R-E G-U-R P-B-H-E-F-R B-S-U-V-F-G-B-E-L Simone referenced the shifted alphabet James created and began writing the real letters over the proxy versions. She went one letter at a time, instead of one word at a time, replacing all the G's with T's, all the U's with H's, and so on. This process only took her a few minutes. She read the sentence to herself and stared up at James and Doris in confusion. What does it say? Anything? Doris anxiously asked. Simone slid the notebook over to her. James leaned over her shoulder, craning his neck for a better view. Written above the proxy letters was a sentence that would change everything. These designs will alter the course of history. What could that mean? James pondered. It means we need to get Dr. J, Simone responded. Dr. Tadashi Jinochi read the words aloud. These designs will alter the course of history. Dunning sat across from him at a large desk in the center of the room. He leaned back in his chair, put his arms behind his head, and spoke slowly. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're telling me a 15-year-old broke the code that three working professionals top of their field, mind you, and an intern my own niece couldn't break. A 15-year-old who was in our top-secret research and development labs without my knowledge. Mr. Dunning, sir, Dr. Genocchi was cut off before he could finish. We need to get him on the payroll. Dunning leaned forward and pressed the intercom switch on his phone. After a short beep, he spoke. Mrs. Freeman, will you call downstairs to R&D and bring up the boy named... He let go of the button and shifted his focus to Genochi. What's the kid's name? His name is Jim, uh, James Hensley. Genochi stumbled through the words. Dunning pressed the intercom switch once again and waited on the beep. Mrs. Freeman, sorry about that. His name is James Hensley. Have him come upstairs and get started on paperwork for hiring. For now, we'll call him a part-time hire. Can you get this buttoned up within the hour? Mrs. Freeman spoke without hesitation. Yes, sir. I'll get on it right away. Dunning did not thank the woman. Instead, he released the intercom switch and turned his attention back to Tadashi Jinochi. What else do you have? Dunning requested. Simone and Jim, uh, James, are breaking the code by hand. Mr. Mackenzie is working on writing a program that can help decipher the simple code so we can process the massive amount of information faster. Great, Dunning absently replied. Now the question becomes, how did we get this information? 
Dr. Genocchi didn't respond to Dunning's question because he didn't have an answer. Somehow, the machine transmitted this encrypted information, but he didn't understand how it could be possible. The two men sat in silence for a minute longer. Then Dunning spoke. Have they decrypted anything else? No, sir. We'll get back down there and make sure they do. Dunning spun his chair toward the window, dismissing Tadashi Genocchi. In research and development, Simone had the letter-filled notebook decrypting as many of the coded words as she could using the Caesar cipher James made. After he finished his new hire paperwork, becoming an official Blot Inc. employee, James continued combing through the dot matrix printout, attempting to decipher some of the other encryptions. As Doris had mentioned, some sections could be decoded with a bomb machine simulator that Jake McKenzie was working on. The original bomb machine was made famous during World War II as a way of deciphering the German Enigma machine codes. Now, some 30-plus years into the future, those calculations could be computed by a crudely written simulation on any computer. James noticed early on that the encryption was limited to the equivalent of the Enigma's native settings, where the simulated rotors were all set to one, making short work of the small portions that were encoded this way. The deeper James dug into the seemingly random letters, the more diverse the codes became. He was surprised to find that there were at least 11 separate codes hidden in the first five pages of the printout. Some of them were simplistic, and some more modern, complex encryptions. After a few hours of working, Simone stood and asked James to take a break with her. He rubbed his eyes, gathered his pages, and happily obliged. They walked from the basement R&D lab to the first floor vending machines. As they walked, they made small talk. How long have you lived in California? Simone asked. Is it that obvious I'm not from here? James responded. Jim, with that accent? Of course it's obvious, she laughed. I don't have an accent, he said emphatically, shaking his head. Maybe a little one, he conceded with a light smile. Well, Simone urged. Oh, um, I've been here since I was eight, he thought for a second. Yeah, pretty sure I was eight. I'm from the East Coast originally, South Carolina. I don't remember a lot from then, though. Just flashes, really. The beach was a lot different there than it is here. I remember the water being warm, too. It was almost like bath water. Right on. Sounds nice, she continued. Why'd your family move? My stepmom was in the military then, and we got stationed here. We moved around a lot. I don't remember much of it, though. I was too young. I do miss some things in South Carolina, though. James stared into the distance, lost in his thoughts. Simone watched him closely for a minute before speaking again. I think it's interesting, and kind of weird if I'm being honest, that you're only 15 but you're in college. I guess it's weird, James said. Feels normal to me. I'm lucky, though. My family really cares about me. My dad and stepmom go out of their way to make sure that I have every opportunity to succeed. He paused briefly. I don't want to let them down, you know. They stopped walking. Simone looked up to see his piercing blue eyes were locked onto her dark brown ones. She held his gaze for a moment before dropping her head and looking away. She hesitated. I guess so. There's the machines. She pointed, changed the subject, and left James standing alone as she went over to the vending machines. He stood there for a moment before following. I got about two bucks. Do you want anything? Simone reached into her pocket, 
digging out a small handful of change. Maybe, he said. What are you getting? Probably just some gum. They have my favorite kind, winter mint pops. It's really a great gum. It doesn't lose its flavor too quickly, and the wrapper has a pretty cool brain teaser with it. Never heard of it. James looked through the glass to the goodies beyond. I'm more of a candy bar kind of guy. Simone deposited a few quarters into the machine. It's very good. Refreshing, she said as she pulled the lever, dropping the small package of gum into the dispensary chute. She grabbed the pack, opened it, and took out the first stick of gum. The pale green gum smelled of mint so strong that James's eyes watered a bit. Simone popped the stick into her mouth and flipped around the package to show James the brain teaser. Check it out! She chewed the gum loudly, chomping her way through it as if it was a piece of wood and she was a beaver. It looks like for this one, you just fold the corners in and then fold it over for surprise. James watched as she folded each end of the small foiled paper into itself. Each corner had an abstract bit of ink splashed across the edge of the wrapper. As she made the final crease, he noticed a new picture reveal itself from the separate parts of the drawing. Simone continued to talk, but James stopped listening. His eyes darted from the gum wrapper in her hand, up, to the left, then back to the small paper, as his brain furiously opened mystical doors that held answers to some unknown problem. Simone, he said, cutting her off mid-sentence. Hold on a sec. Rude! She made a disgusted face, but then noticed his face was contorted in thought. He lifted his hand, touching the tips of his fingers to his forehead, and mumbled to himself. What? she asked. What is it? You're a genius. He turned on his heels and started running down the hall toward the stairs that took him back to the basement R&D lab. What the hell? she yelled, pocketing the pack of gum with the empty wrapper, and took off running after him. You've been listening to 1989, After Humanity, written and narrated by Paul Inman. Follow Aubrey and Drake on Twitter at TMC Restores, and follow me at Paul Inman SC. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and anywhere podcasts are available. It really helps. Email 1989afterhumanity at gmail.com with any feedback. If you'd like to support the podcast, please go to co-fi.com slash paulinman. That's ko-fi.com slash Paul Inman.